What's up, Stitches? Episode 15 already. Can you believe it? Time flies, but also time feels like not real anymore because of Corona, right? Anyway, hi! With this episode, I'm back to focusing on themes that bring a wide variety of needleworked objects together. The theme is stitching while imprisoned, which is very grim, possibly fun, we'll see. And that theme, stitching while imprisoned, will get me through two episodes. That's right, today's episode is part one of two, Stitching While Imprisoned edition. Today I'm focusing on three objects that span more than 350 years. Two of these objects were made in England and one in Germany. I didn't choose those areas on purpose, they just happened to be the countries of origin of some very fiery pieces of needlework made under various forms of incarceration. Today's episode will be focused on the pre-20th century pieces, and next week's will be all about the 20th century and 21st century ones. Before I get into my ramble and study of these objects, I, of course, gotta say, all the images and sources are available on So What Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You know it, you love it, and hopefully you follow that Twitter and Instagram. And also, we're on Facebook now at So What Podcast. Feel free to follow it there. Anyway, here we go. My whole thing, my whole thought process when looking at and thinking about these objects is that there's something very deep-seated about the need to sew. These women used anything available to them to commemorate their suffering through stitch. I'm tempted to say that these objects show that the relationship between women and stitching is primal, but I think it's actually not that, because that implies some sort of inherent gendered thing between stitching, which definitely isn't the case. Women have been and are still associated with stitchery because they've been made to stitch for hundreds and even thousands of years, and I will get into that later, but all that's to say that we see time and again that needlework is a unique and very powerful way for women to express their innermost thoughts and to chart and commemorate their suffering. We saw that in Elizabeth Parker's sampler, which I discussed in my second episode, Text and Protest, and we see that again here. There's a lot to say and think about the use of stitching while in prison and how that's typically something done by women. I can't think of a single instance of someone who identifies as male being imprisoned and stitching, historically. If I'm wrong, let me know. There are quite a few surviving samplers and other needleworked objects by boys and men, so it's not like men were just never taught to stitch. A lot of them were. Interestingly, one example of men stitching is basically the opposite of women stitching while imprisoned. These men stitched to recover from trauma instead of stitching during it, as the women did. The dudes I'm referring to here are the World War I soldiers recovering from physical and mental injury who were taught embroidery as a form of rehabilitation. Their rehab embroidery is like the opposite of the three objects I'm going to talk about today in terms of purpose, but obviously very similar in terms of production. These objects I'm about to get into exhibit women using that skill that Western society told them they had to learn and turning it on its head and turning this supposedly gentle craft into tools through which to memorialize suffering and being locked behind prison bars and into straitjackets. It's really fascinating that women and girls were often taught to stitch in places and time periods where they were controlled and limited in their political, economic, and sometimes even social power, but that when truly all that control was taken from them and they were imprisoned, they returned to that stitching. They took an aspect of that patriarchal control and then used it to express their discontent when placed in environments of even more extreme patriarchal control. Does that make sense? I hope it does. That's maybe just a little ramble. Anyway, it's something I think about a lot, how historic stitching combined control and instruction with creativity in different ways depending on time period, place, and personal circumstance. 
Okay, yes, that's enough of my kind of theoretical ramble about this stuff. Let's get into the actual objects. The first is a group of needleworked objects. It's the embroideries of Mary Queen of Scots. If I could make a triumphant, like, trumpet noise with my mouth, I would. Because, like, literally, embroidery stitched by royalty almost 500 years ago? Yes, it's true. It is a rare treat. But first, some historical context. Okay, here we go. In 1568, a decade after Queen Elizabeth I became queen, her cousin Mary was in a pickle. Mary, the Catholic Queen of Scotland, was deposed and forced to flee across the border into England because of a powerful Protestant coalition that rose up against her. Mary thought Queen Elizabeth would offer her help and protection because they were family, right? No, that is very wrong. Mary was really super-duper not welcome into Protestant England as a high-profile Catholic, but it was more than religion. Mary also had a claim to the English throne, so she represented a very real political threat to Elizabeth, who had no children and therefore no heirs. That threat was made even more real by the fact that a lot of Catholics thought she was illegitimate, which, you know, big yikes all around. Elizabeth saw Mary coming and was like, absolutely not, so she ordered Mary to be held in detention. Mary remained in custody for the rest of her life, which was 18 and a half more years. While Mary was imprisoned, she stitched. A lot. She embroidered almost the entire time she was held in the custody of George Talbot, 6th Earl of Shrewsbury, and a wealthy Protestant. That was from 1569 to 1584-ish. She was carted around to Talbot's various country estates. She had a pretty good life as a prisoner, she wasn't kept in a cell, and she had a huge domestic staff, well-decorated rooms, and a personal chef. But I can't imagine those luxuries would still be a far cry from her life as a queen, so she understandably angsted out using needlework. Sometimes, Talbot's second wife, Elizabeth, better known as Bess of Hardwick, came to visit and, while there, worked on Mary's embroideries with her. Mary was also sometimes aided in her stitching by members of her household, including professional embroiderers who were hired. Now, I realize this is a lot of historical context and not a lot of looking at the objects, but I promise we will get there. Just a little bit more history. We love context. I love it. You love it. Yay. Okay, so after Mary's beheading in 1587, her embroideries were given to Anne Dacre? Dacre? D-A-C-R-E. I don't know. However you pronounce her name, she was the Countess of Arundel. And the panels were stitched onto green velvet, probably in the 17th century, and some were later reconfigured. These velvet-embroidered hybrids are now called the Marion Hanging, Shrewsbury Hanging, Cavendish Hanging, and Oxborough Valance. There was another hanging that was broken up into its original embroideries. Almost all of the pieces are in the Victoria and Albert Museum, with three in the Royal Collection. Okay, finally, yes, uh, time to talk about the embroidered objects themselves. I'm going to call the embroideries medallions. They range from being octagonal to rectangular to being kind of a scalloped quatrefoil shape thing that maybe looks like a cross. There are over a hundred of them, which we love to see, and they cover a whole variety of topics and themes, from British animals and domestic landscapes like honeybees, falcons, and dogs, to exotic animals like an elephant, tiger, and a dolphin. There are also fantastical creatures like a dragon and unicorn, and plants including a dandelion and palm tree. I am inspired by that range. Anyway, most of them were copied from the woodcut illustrations and emblem books of the time. Emblem books contained allegorical illustrations with explanatory texts. And like those books, Mary's embroideries have stitched descriptions too. They say things in a delightfully 16th century spelling and pronunciation like a rhinocerote, a bird of America, and delphin. Delphin is dolphin, rhinocerote is rhinoceros. I'm assuming you got that, but there you are just in case. 
Some of the medallions feature Mary and Bess of Hardwick's monograms, which is very cute because it's just like friendship, but also ownership of their own work. Love to get credit for one's labor. And for all you Stitch fans out there, let's get into the specific stitches. The medallions are made using counted thread embroidery, which is a technique in which the number of stitches is decided before the embroidery is even begun. Only cross stitch and tent stitch were used, which were quick and simple in comparison to a lot of the other stitches used at that time. The medallions were made of polychrome silk threads and gold, silver, and silver gilt metallic threads on a coarsely woven linen ground. The pieces were maybe first used as cushion covers or were made into smaller hangings for Bess's various homes. But Mary also liked to send embroideries to friends and supporters, so maybe they were used for that purpose? Honestly, who knows? All I know is that they are very heckin' cool. Okay, but what is the significance of Mary Queen of Scots spending her imprisonment stitching? Well, as we'll see, embroidery was a way for Mary to express her innermost thoughts, which is a theme you'll hear throughout this episode. For the other examples I'll discuss, those thoughts were not really secretive, they were very explicitly expressed. But for Mary, as a deposed queen locked away by her cousin, she obviously couldn't outwardly express her feelings and fight to regain her throne, so she used needlework motifs to speak for her. Mary's stitched medallions include a marigold, which is actually derived from Mary's gold, turning towards the sun, which indicates courage in the midst of a struggle. And in another medallion, a yellow rose is attacked by a group of caterpillars labeled as the canker. Presumably, Mary is the rose and the caterpillars are Elizabeth and all those who oppose Mary's claim to the throne. But wait, there are more! There's also a panel that shows a grapevine and a hand holding a pruning knife. It refers to Mary's claim to the throne. Mary is the hand with the knife, cutting away the fruitless branch of the Tudor family tree, since Elizabeth had no children, bearing no fruit. In case that's not obvious enough, there's a motto stitched atop the scene which reads, Virescit vulnere virtus. I only took Latin for one semester. My pronunciation does not exist. I very much apologize. But that Latin phrase means virtue flourished by wounding. Another medallion she made shows a phoenix rising from the ashes, which of course implies that she, her power, and Catholic power will rise again. How fiery! Literally! Oh, love to see it. As we can see, Mary was still framing herself as a political leader through Stitch. Community textile artist and author Claire Hunter talks a lot about Mary's embroideries in her excellent book called Threads of Life, A History of the World Through the Eye of a Needle, and she has a really good paragraph that I want to share with you all. Hunter writes, quote, Under the constant surveillance of her jailers, with her letters censored, embroidery became a way for Mary to preserve her sense of self and continue to exercise her power. Unlike the careful text she crafted in her correspondence, which she was only too aware was read by others, or the letters she smuggled out that were in danger of being intercepted by Elizabeth's spy masters, embroidery gave her freedom of expression. Under the guise of innocent motifs, her embroidery became a covert form of communication. End quote. Which, like, yes, it's all very true. Mary's medallions are essentially the opposite of the other two pieces I'll be discussing in this episode. She used embroidery to express herself, but it had to be in a coded, secretive way. Even when facing death, Mary used needlework and textiles to express herself covertly. At her execution, she wore a petticoat and sleeves of blood red. Red was the Catholic color of martyrdom. Even in the last moments of her life, Mary used textiles for political, and in this case, religious, purposes. 
For Mary and for other imprisoned women, stitching isn't just stitching. Stitching can say things the spoken or written word can't, and sometimes it's able to traverse centuries and speak for the person who did the stitching herself. Approximately 300 years after Mary and across the English Channel, a German woman named Agnes Richter stitched words upon her jacket. It was 1895, and Agnes was in the Hubertusburg Psychiatric Institution, and the jacket she was embroidering on was her straitjacket. Agnes was born in 1844, and up to her 50s she was a seamstress, which we know because she filed a police report about being robbed. In 1893, she was admitted to the Hubertusburg Psychiatric Institution at the behest of her father and brothers after having, according to records, several delusional episodes. She was diagnosed as paranoid and kept in the institution for the remaining 26 years of her life. We know about Agnes Richter essentially only because of her tiny jacket, which really makes clear that needlework is often the only reminder of an entire existence. In this case, needlework reminds us not only of a life as rich and complex as our own, but it also shows us how needlework can be used as a means to emote and express ourselves, even if we don't really understand exactly what is being expressed. I say this because most of what Agnes embroidered on her jacket is impossible to read. Agnes embroidered Deutsch Schrift, and Germans, please correct me if I'm wrong in saying that, Deutsch Schrift, which is a script that has largely fallen out of use. The text is stitched in multiple colors, including red, yellow, blue, orange, and white. It overlaps on itself and is obscured or faded in some areas because the jacket was obviously worn a lot. Little portions of the text have been deciphered, though, and have been translated into English. Some of the embroidery reads, quote, I am not big, and I wish to read, and I plunge headlong into disaster. Agnes also stitched her patient number 583M over and over again. Agnes not only embroidered onto the garment, she made it herself. The jacket has sweat stains and darts in the back, and it's clear that every step of the way, she stitched her soul into that brown wool and coarse linen the jacket is made out of. Clearly, Agnes used her jacket as a diary. Her needle was the pen and her garment the page. She turned a form of literal constriction, this straight jacket, into a vessel of expression. And she took stitching, what is often viewed as a limiting, oppressing task, into a space of literal limitation and oppression and turned it into freedom, or perhaps more accurately, necessary invention. As a seamstress, stitching is what Agnes knew. Did embroidering the Deutsch Schrift words onto the jacket bring her joy, or comfort, or a way to express her churning thoughts? It's obviously not for me to say, but what's clear is that for Agnes, needlework was a way to voice her frustration and devastation and confusion that she had lost any agency she had had before being sent to the Hubertusburg Psychiatric Institution. I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll say it again. Needlework is like a diary, and a needle is like a pen, and what I'm saying is give as much credit to women's stitching as you do to their writing. I'm not saying you specifically don't, it's just a note to the world at large. Women have often spoken through stitching. Listen to them. Okay, so right around the same time, back on English soil, another woman was stitching while imprisoned. Her name was Lorena Bulwer. She was born in 1838 in Beckel, Suffolk. Sometime before 1861, her family moved to Great Yarmouth, where she spent the rest of her life. She ran a guest house with her mom until her mother's death in 1893, and shortly after, Lorena's brother placed her in the Great Yarmouth workhouse, paying to leave her there. She was 55, and honestly, you all should see my face right now, it is just a big, sad face. What a cruel brother, and what a deeply unfun way to spend the rest of your life. 
The workhouse had about 500 inmates, including 60 who were classified as lunatics. And I say lunatics in big quotation marks because what a bad word to use. Lorena was part of that group, all of whom had various forms of mental illness. They were made to unpick oakum, which was tarred fiber used to seal gaps, for more than 10 hours a day. She died in 1912 and was buried close to the workhouse. Ugh, there's no escape. It's all deeply bad times. Let's get into her needlework. Lorena embroidered long strings of text that are full of protest and outrage. Her needlework is basically cotton embroidered with various colors of wool threads. There are instances of figures made of cloth and embroidery thread, but it's mostly text. That text is all capitalized and lacks any punctuation. It's essentially one long tirade. And when I say long, I mean really, really long. One of these pieces, which are kind of like letters written to no one in particular, is 12 feet long and another is 14. Whoa. Lorena talks a lot about various stuff in her needlework. She mentions people that have been verified to be real people she knew, but then she also talks about being related to the royal family, which was definitely not true. She also writes about being sexually abused, so trigger warning here. She writes, quote, I, Miss Lorena Bulwer, was examined by Dr. Pinching of Walthamstow, Essex, and found to be a properly shaped woman, end quote. This Dr. Pinching was actually a real person and was implicated in the sexual abuse of patients. So yep, I know I keep saying it, but deeply, deeply bad times. Lorena's stitching is full of anger, which is obviously really emphasized by the all caps, no punctuation situation. She writes of her place in the workhouse, quote, I have wasted 10 years in this damnation, hell, tramp, den of old women, old hags, end quote. And also like, what a mood, but also oof. But honestly, would love to be called an old bag. I think that's kind of fun. Claire Hunter, who we heard from earlier, also has a really good quote in her book about Lorena and her needlework. She writes, quote, The boldness of her colors and the scale of her letters, the extreme form of her needlework, in stark contrast to the delicate stitchery of her day, was a desperate attempt to gain attention, a plea for help writ large. This was no random choice, but like Agnes's, purposeful. Lorena made her sewing aggressively eye-catching to convey her palpable anguish and anger at her abandonment, end quote. Oi, isn't that so poignant? With her embroidered jacket, Agnes Richter exhibits her anger, frustration, and sadness by wearing her own words. Lorena Bulwer exhibits those same feelings not by wearing her work on her body, but by making her stitches scream through bright colors and uniformly gigantic letters. What obviously sucks about the imprisonment of Mary Queen of Scots, Agnes Richter, and Lorena Bulwer, beyond the fact that they were literally confined to places where they did not have control and definitely did not want to be, is that they all spent the rest of their lives imprisoned. They never got to experience freedom again. Which makes the already poignant needlework even more poignant. Stitching allowed them to express their innermost feelings, their frustration and anguish, but it didn't save them. In the face of institutions of control much more powerful than them, nothing could. But thanks to their needlework, these women and their terrible circumstances are at least remembered. They speak their anger and sadness and confusion to us through thread. Now, before I conclude, I wanted to tell you the locations of all of these objects at the end of the episode because they are truly all over the place and I just thought it would be better to kind of combine it all here. So much of Mary Queen of Scots's needlework is at the Victorian Albert Museum. Within that group, the Oxborough hangings are on permanent loan to Oxborough Hall. The Royal Collection has three needlework medallions too. 
Agnes Richter's jacket is in the Prinzhorn Collection at the University Hospital of Heidelberg. Lorena Bulwer's pieces are at the Thackeray Medical Museum in Leeds and Norwich Castle Museum. I think at least one might be elsewhere. I'm honestly not sure. I've had a bit of trouble tracking down all of her pieces because they all have kind of gone all over the place, from Christie's to Antiques Roadshow to various museums. Next week, I will, as I mentioned earlier, carry on the theme of women stitching while imprisoned. I'll be discussing the several suffragette jail embroideries that survive, as well as an object that's pretty new to me, and that I'll simply call Merlin's coat. Merlin's coat? I think it's Merlin. Get excited, no matter how you pronounce it, get excited. And get happy about the fact that even though we're living through a global pandemic, and that sometimes means that it feels like we're imprisoned and limited to our homes because we are, most of us have the freedom to stitch what we choose or study the stitching we choose too. And that is also to say that clearly needlework and mental health are closely intertwined. That's probably one of the many reasons so many people have taken up stitching during COVID. So if stitching is easing whatever you're feeling during these weird times, rad. And if stitching is just making you more frustrated and less chill and therefore just isn't for you, also rad. No matter what happens, needlework and the study of it will always be here. Hopefully that brings you some comfort, because I know it does for me. Okay, that is it for me, Isabella over and out. As always, thanks so much for listening. Your support truly makes me feel so warm and fuzzy inside. And please, if you haven't already, like and rate and subscribe and tell your friends about So What? Yay, so fun. We now have a Facebook page as well, as I mentioned earlier. Join it. Be a friend. Be, be a good pal. Yay. Now go out and stitch some stories. And if you want to stitch some doy shrift on a jacket, just know that I'll be impressed. Bye.